Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact, in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today. And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I found, and I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. 
Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. Values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I hope you're enjoying these final weeks of summer or winter, whatever the case may be. For this month's interview, I've invited two guests to join us, Kimberly Ann Johnson and Stephen Jenkinson, co-authors of the new book, Reckoning. I've known Kimberly for a couple of decades now. She's been on this podcast before, and we first met when she was a teacher at Richard Freeman's Yoga Studio here in Boulder, Colorado, even before I lived here when I used to come out to just spend time studying and practicing at Richard's studio. And I loved her teaching so much that in 2009, I invited her to come over to Thailand to co-teach a 200-hour yoga teacher training with me there. And she reached out to me this summer to see if I'd like to have her and Stephen on the podcast. And I enthusiastically said yes, as I so appreciate Kimberly's work, as well as Stephen's. I was first introduced to Stephen's work about four years ago when I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Experiencing a lot of grief at the time, a colleague there who was leading grief circles, which were on pause um, for a bit, recommended that I go see him when he was speaking in Ojai, uh, because she said that he teaches and speaks a lot about grief. And I also watched a film that he's featured in Grief Walker, and was just really intrigued and taken by the depth of his presence and wisdom. So a little bit more about both of them. Stephen Jenkinson is a culture activist and author. He teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor at the Orphan Wisdom School, which he co-founded with his wife, Natalie Roy in 2010, and which convenes semi-annually in Deakin, Ontario and in Northern Europe. He has his master's degrees in Harvard, you know, from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. He apprenticed to a master's storyteller when he was a young man and has worked extensively with dying people and their families. He's also a former program director in a major Canadian hospital, as well as a former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school. He's a sculptor and traditional canoe builder whose house won a Governor General's Award for Architecture. Since co-founding the Knights of Grief and Mystery Project with singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins in 2015, he has toured this musical and tent show revival, storytelling slash ceremony of a show across North America, the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. They released their Knights of Grief and Mystery album in 2017, And at the end of 2020, they released two new records, Dark Roads and Rough Gods. He is prolific, as maybe you are catching on. He's the author of A Generation's Worth, 
spirit work while the crisis reigns, come of age, the crisis of elderhood in a time of trouble, the award-winning Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul, homecoming, the haiku sessions, how it all could be, a workbook for dying people and those who love them, angel and executioner, grief and the love of life, and money and the soul's desires, a meditation. He was a contributing author to palliative care, core skills, and clinical competencies. He's also the subject of the feature-length documentary film that I mentioned earlier, Grief Walker, a portrait of his work with dying people, and Lost Nation Road, which is a shorter documentary on the crafting of the Knights of Grief and Mystery Tours. His books, recordings, and DVDs are all available on his website, orphanwisdom.com. And now on to Kimberly. Kimberly Ann Johnson is a somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, structural integration practitioner, sexological body worker, birth doula, and single mom. She graduated valedictorian of the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and now turns her policy background to women's health. She specializes in helping women heal from birth injuries, gynecological traumas, and sexual boundary ruptures. She is the author of The Fourth Trimester, Call of the Wild, and Reckoning, co-authored with Stephen Jenkinson. You can learn more about Kimberly at KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. And their new book, Reckoning, is out today, August 16th. You can order it and learn more about it at Stephen's website, orphanwisdom.com. Today's conversation is rich, nuanced, and as Stephen says at the end of it, bottomless. So may it spark new insights, questions, and curiosities, and whatever else may arise as you listen. Enjoy. Welcome. Kimberly and Stephen, it's good to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And we always start our conversations here with a, just a brief personal check-in. So I appreciate if you could both share with listeners where you're joining us from today and how you're doing right now at the levels of body, heart, and mind. And why don't we start with you, Stephen? Okay, as if I'd know, but okay. Yeah. Let me let me see. Uh, so I just mentioned it's 100 degrees more or less Fahrenheit where I'm sitting right now. So it's a little close, a little warm. We just got off doing uh, chores with the sheep, and um, and I've been doing interviews all day long. And we just picked up our new book this afternoon from the printer, which I haven't seen it yet, but they tell me it looks quote pretty good unquote, which around here means spectacular. <clears throat> and so there's a lot to look forward to, and I'm doing my fair share of looking forward to. So, so far, so good. Thank you. And, and how about you, Kimberly? I'm in San Diego, and I got home late last night after being away for two months. So I'm just landing and... uh accepting that this is where I live, even though sometimes I feel more comfortable away 
away from where I live and Mm -hmm. transitioning back into the school year. I'm a mom. So my daughter actually has a school event today and, you know, transitioning from summer and less structure to the impending (laughs) structure that's coming up. Thank you. And I don't usually share a check-in, but I feel like it would help me to just arrive here more if I did that today. Um, So I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and this is my first um, podcast interview in my new home. I just, I've spent the past week moving and I'm, I'm always just reminded after I move what, what a full on experience it is, (laughs) like just physically and mentally. And Mm -hmm. so I'm feeling, feeling just the fatigue of that, but grateful to be in a new home and be getting back into routine again. So I'm grateful to have this conversation with you both. Um, I appreciate the work that both of you bring into the world and this co-creation that you have now with this new book that you're talking about, Stephen Reckoning. And I'd love for us to take time today to talk more about that book. And I think the good first step, a good first step would be to take listeners back to how this was first conceived. Um, I know that this, or I, I think that this started with a podcast interview, Kimberly, you hosting Stephen on your podcast in August of 2021. And I'm wondering if you can share with us just what, what inspired you to reach out to Stephen to have that conversation in the first place? Yeah, it was about a year ago now. And I was having a rough go of it. Um, I'd during the pandemic, I'd moved to New York, I'd moved back to San Diego from New York. Uh, I had a number of relationships kind of fall apart, not just romantic, but community friendships. I had just put out my last book, Call of the Wild, and a massive kind of slander campaign went underway. And I was feeling quite disheartened by the polarization of viewpoints and the continual kind of unraveling and fragmentation of points of view, uh, feeling really sad about my own ability to be with those conversations and people that I had previously thought I was really close to, or that I at least had something in common with seeing them occupy a space that was so drastically different from what I was drawing from and really confused about if I should try to kind of salvage those relationships or stay in conversation or if it was time to let them go. And in those times, I was having a lot of conversations with a friend of mine named Matthew Stillman, who's an orphan wisdom scholar. And he recommended that I speak with Stephen Jenkinson. So I wrote to Natalie, Stephen's wife, who does a lot of the scheduling. And it was like a Sunday that I wrote and we were already on 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 Wednesday. So I, in my mind, I was thinking it was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. I just thought it would take a lot longer to be able to have that conversation. And then after the conversation, uh, I was just, you know, really moved and devastated also, but 
I, I had that feeling kind of like after I had my first somatic experiencing session, after a lot of years of therapy, that something really different was happening and it was compelling me, but I didn't really understand it. So I wrote that to Natalie just to say, thank you. And then Stephen Jenkinson wrote me back and said, like, how about we talk again tomorrow? And I was just really surprised about that. And I was nervous and daunted, but also thought, okay, well, you can't, that's the kind of invitation that you don't say no to. So we had another conversation and based on those two conversations, there was like three times as many listeners of any other podcast that I've done. And a lot of people wrote to me just saying that they shared my questioning and they got a lot out of that experience. So I went on to invite Stephen to do a series of five conversations I, I really feel like there's so many one hour conversations. Like my podcast is one hour. If I have a guest teacher on the course I'm doing, it's one hour. And I, of course, then there's like the reduced one minute reel and, you know, you can get one phrase in. And I felt like I wanted something that was more ample and wide and had time to really work with some of these big words and big ideas that some of them were a little bit familiar, but I knew they didn't fit in the same place that they fit in the worldviews that I had learned before. And so that is the bulk. Those conversations are the bulk of the book. Yeah. And Stephen, I'm curious, what, what, what was it that led you to like after when after Kimberly emailed Natalie and just shared her her response to your first conversation, what what was it in you that that made you offer a second conversation? Uh, guilt. Not really. No, no, I didn't. I I would I knew that I didn't have my glasses on for the whole event, but I could tell by her her voice that she was weeping more often than she wasn't, and. I was trying to make sense of it. I, I didn't know if she was literally coming unglued because I didn't know the woman at all, right? So no prior experience. And I don't know if this is okay. And I really don't know if it's okay with her, but I'm following her lead. And her lead is, I know how to do this thing called being un- upset, bordering on unraveled. So so just you know, stay with me. And so I did. And I, I'm, I'm really glad I followed her lead. And didn't um, I wasn't inclined to to pull back, you know, because uh, somehow this was not in keeping with with an engagement between two human beings who are both still alive. As far as the second one goes, well, you know, I'm not I'm, I don't play hard to get, really. I mean, I kind of learned the sense of urgency from working in the death trade for as long as I did. That you don't you don't put off till Tuesday what you can do today, something like this, because. Oftentimes Tuesday never comes, and so I, uh, I was amazed that she wanted to go again, and I said, "Well, let's make your unmooring uh, at least where we begin." And I guess we did, and uh, I, like I said, I was I was awful glad that I listened to her, even though I didn't seem to be doing a lot of listening. But I, I was listening very, very carefully to what she was saying. And, and as I've often said in the old days, I was listening very carefully to what she wasn't saying, too. And I was relieved to be with a three-dimensional human being 
who wasn't um, defending herself against the presence of another person. Yeah, I'm just taking that in. So one one clarifying follow-up question, Stephen, and I and I get a sense of what you mean just from knowing your your work some and also reading reading your all's book. Um, just now you mentioned working in the death trade, and I'm wondering if you could just, just share what you mean by that with listeners. Well, people would know it as end-of-life care or palliative care or things of that kind. So I just I was just my job was to get a lot of people who were dying to die deliberately and and alertly and and consciously and purposefully and like that and it was by far and away not an easy sell i can tell you and the notion that there's a there's timeliness to this was also a strange idea so i was had a more of a sense of urgency about the matter than they often did and so I found that my time in the death trade did two wonderful things for me. One, it enabled me to engage in, in a, a kind of brinksmanship with fellow human beings. The other thing it did was this disabused me of the old order understanding what constitutes a therapeutic encounter or a therapeutic or a counseling relationship or things of that kind. And I hopefully I could have I could have lapsed a time or two, but I don't think I've done any counseling since those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the name of your, your book is Reckoning. And I'm curious if you can speak to what, what is behind that name? What is it? What does it mean for, for each of you? Well, it's the only one of Stephen's books that ends in ING. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have put a few programs and uh, like my audio program that sounds true has an ING reclaiming the feminine. Uh, to me, it is an ongoing process and those particular set of encounters and the letters that we wrote to each other are really getting underneath a lot of this more I mean, there's so many ways that we can question ourselves right now and question what's happening in the world. And everyone is, I mean, that's what's happening all around is what I can see. But asking the right questions that are kind of farther upstream to me is where I'm at in my life of, okay, I've done this thing, but what's farther upstream to this? And okay, I've done this, but what's what's farther at the source? And so the reckoning is, felt like the process of what was happening in the interaction. And Kimberly, can you give an example of um, what a question, what an upstream question is for you right now? I'm, I'm it's all I, I'm filled with them. Uh, yes. Well, one question is for a long time, I did one-on-one -on -one work and then there was so many people on waiting lists that it wasn't possible anymore. So what could I do that could attend to that difficulty that one-on-one -on -one work has all kinds of challenges to it, accessibility, my own physicality and physical capability within doing hands-on work, 
uh, location, those kinds of things. So then, okay, let me work with bigger groups of people in a more of a teaching capacity. Upstream of that to me is how did we even get to this place where, for instance, I could have, I could be a client in a therapy session and my therapist says to me that I need to have, you know, in order to do the work I do, I need a massage therapist and a counselor and like, you know, a support team. And I think to myself, well, maybe I should do work that doesn't require that I have a support team of that variety. So then what does that look like? And then upstream of that is, what does it even mean to be living publicly? And is part of this world that we're in that is so much about the cult of one. And, you know, as Amanda Montel said in her book, cultish, you know, it's like the mighty A algorithm. It's like, we're the God and the practitioner at the same time. So then what do I do to contend with that of building a culture that I want to be a part of, but probably won't ever really see. And that I want to, that might have the in scraps is maybe a word or, but at the same time, participate in the world that's here now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And, and Stephen, what is, what is, what is reckoning for you? Well, I trust on occasion, I trust the dictionary. And this is one of those times. So as best as I can recall, it's something in the order of an account or an accounting uh, coming to grips with the, uh, the ledger, if you will, the, the, the debts incurred, primordial and otherwise. It's another way of saying, so where, where do we sit? How has it come to this? That's what reckoning is. It's not, it's not condemnation. I mean, I think a lot of people would probably hear the word, see the word on the title of the book and figure immediately it's some kind of, you know, uh, downward plummet into misery and uh, self-recrimination. But nothing of the kind is there. That's not what reckoning is. Reckoning is a willingness to, enter to entertain the distinct possibility that A, things have not always been this way, B, they're not inevitable, and C, by virtue of the fact that we're citizens of a troubled time, we have to decide whether that constitutes an affliction that we bear or an assignment that we're answerable to. That's where I think the title comes from. Mm, yeah, I love that distinction. Yeah. So this is this is a really rich read, and it's not you know it's not something to be read lightly. And it's I feel like I it takes time to digest. And so what what I feel like would be I think the most helpful way to kind of frame it for readers is like Kimberly, you mentioned at the start of our conversation, how in your original talk with Steven on the podcast, that there were like these, these big words or themes that you started to see in a different way. And I'd love for us to just go through some of what I, what I pulled out as those words or themes. Cause I also felt like they were, they were shared in a different context that is really intriguing and really important. 
So the first one, the first one that's, that stands out for me is this concept of elderhood. And on page 159, if it's okay, if I read your words, Stephen, is that all right? Sure. Um, you, you said on people's road to agedness in North America, something happened to their capacity to perform the elderhood function. I think something happened. I don't think it's thousands of years old. I don't think it's as old as capitalism or as old as the Bible. I think it's recognizable in our time. It didn't begin in our time, but it's modern, if you will. Have you ever told yourself that you're going to start eating better, meditating, exercising more, or going to sleep earlier, and then not been able to follow through with it? Or maybe you've told yourself that you were going to stop doing something like smoking, drinking, binging, or spending too much time online, but then weren't able to shift your behavior. Or maybe you've had a conversation with yourself where you say a part of me thinks this, but another part of me wants to do that. Yeah, well, me too. It's very common. And that's one of the reasons why I'm creating another IFS Women's Circle. I've offered two rounds of these circles so far, and I've enjoyed them so much, and participants have gotten so much out of them that I've received also a lot more requests to offer another one. With this, I've decided to do it again and to run another IFS Women's Circle for eight weeks this fall between October and January, and it's limited to 10 women. So the space will allow us to look at ourselves from the perspective that we all have a place inside of us called a self, which some traditions call your Buddha nature or your essence. And from this place, we experience different states of being, things like calmness and compassion, confidence and courage. And as you likely know, we also have all kinds of other thoughts and feelings and emotions that at times can totally overwhelm us and even hijack us. Things like anxiety, depression, anger, loneliness, overdoing, numbing out, things that can negatively impact not only ourselves, but also our relationships, even if we try really hard for that not to happen. So in this circle, we'll work with these parts of you that can become extreme and overwhelm you. And I can teach you some tools from IFS to learn how to dial back to get these parts to dial back rather so that you can access more of that self energy. So if you'd be interested in joining this kind of circle, so you can learn how to feel calmer and not get so overwhelmed by these thoughts and emotions. And so you can feel more connected to yourself and others. So you can also heal the deeper aspects of yourself that maybe still feel out of reach even after years of talk therapy and spiritual practice. This group will help you do all this and more because it turns out that group work can be just as impactful, if not more, than getting one-on-one support. Plus, it's more affordable and can be fun and interesting and also eye-opening to witness other women in their journeys and to realize that What you're going through is not that strange or different from what others are experiencing. If this sounds interesting to you, you can learn more and join us at womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash IFS circle. That's womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash IFS circle. And now back to today's conversation. 
So Stephen, can you speak to us more about elderhood? And if I'm getting it right, you're you're saying it's not about a person per se, but more about the function. Right. Yes, thanks for asking. Um, not that I pretend to have the market cornered on the business, but uh, I can come up with a few things at short notice. So here we go. Um, oftentimes in a time, especially like ours, where we're so personality cult fascinated um, and, you know, the more unique and the more bizarre and the more compelling, the more hits, the, the better, etc. cetera. Uh, elderhood is a very confounding proposition in a time like that because it doesn't, let's say that it employs certain personalities for a very brief period of time, tolerates those personality types and then moves on. That's the elder function from a from a, how it visits people point of view is not a direct consequence of being a geezer. If it were, we'd be awash in your country and mine. We'd be awash in elders. We, we couldn't bear the thought of another elder encounter because it would be it would be the course, the, the state of affairs. But this is far from the case. I'll go out on a limb and guess for both of you as well as for me. In fact, it's so scant and so hard to, to find that I have all but given up on the notion that people of my age constitute a, a catchment area for my, my pleas. And I've, I've almost by somewhat reluctantly, but ultimately I think I've come around to the idea that speaking with people of uh, Kimberly's generation is frankly a better employment of whatever I'm capable of than people of my own age. People of my own age are looking for elders too. This is a grim proposition. I mean, at some point you have to reach the age where you realize being on the take is no longer uh, fitting. Trying to be the best you, you can be all, you know, that whole rigmarole. Surely to God, there's a statute of limitations on it. So, so if I come more directly to your question, then what constitutes the elder function? Uh, in, at the risk of cutting it short, it would be something like this. <clears throat> the elder is not a really is not a guide in any sense of that term, and not a not a life coach of any description. I don't think um, they first of all they don't instruct. No, they they probably they caution more than instruct. And it's their example that cautions, not their, not their instruction. So um, elders are practitioners of, of kind of radical understanding what constitutes limit. They're practitioners of limitation. They're not people who are trying to extend limit until it's no longer recognizable as a properly conducted human life. You can tell what I'm contending with by saying such a thing. Elders, on the other hand, are their visitations of limit upon the general populace. That's what they do. And they characterize limit as God-given instead of God-removed. And um, the best analogy I can find is the analogy of wine, which I don't pretend to understand it, but I, I like it when I like it. And I, I wondered one time, how do we end up with wine if we don't have recourse to the goofy language of the wine people? Uh, but among us lay types, what happens? 100 gallons of grape juice you start off the life of wine with, 
but I'm fairly sure you don't end up with 100 gallons. I'm fairly sure that the deepening of the wine or the grape juice so that it becomes wine is a consequence of some kind of diminishment in the volume. So the parallel I'm drawing here is, you know, you don't cross the finish line as a human being the way you started the race. Far from it. You're not, you haven't become all you can be. The rest of you stretches out before you basically unaccessible. And then you live a life where you have no recourse to your, to your maximum calibrated mastery. And you learn to live understanding that limits are mandatory for this world to survive our presence in it. And then you, you embody that accordingly and, uh, and you obey the dictum to be wrecked on schedule. And if you're lucky enough to be wrecked on schedule in the presence of other people who are younger than you, then perhaps you become an exemplar unawares and a kind of counterintuitive one at that. Well, that's the beginning of an answer though. So would you say it's like, in some ways it's like coming to terms with our humanity? Well, only if you understand humanity as a fundamentally limited and flawed undertaking. Yeah. That if you can inhabit your limits, you've done well. So it's, it, it flips back and forth across this, this razor's edge of, of uh, you know, what all of us have lived with during the course of our lives, which is the expectation to live up to this myth called your potential. Human, human potential is not limitless. <laughs> no matter what Nelson Mandela or anybody else says about it. And this limitlessness has cost the world dearly and drastically, you know, our pursuit of it. If we inhabit our limits, we become something that I think younger people are worthy of understanding themselves to come from. But if we constantly attempt to thwart our limits, we're, we're not imbued with a sense of grief about life. We're imbued with a sense of grievance. And that's what I see around me all the time. That's what is manifest in the, in the general discourse is, you know, grievance comes first, trauma comes first, belligerence comes first, you know, my personal position comes first and the world disappears and your fellows disappear. And what do you have kinship with? Your own striving. This is a lonely proposition. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really important this like just to lay out because this is like you said this is so much of just the predicament that we're in in the world just this constant striving for bigger more greater better um Kimberly is there anything you wanted to add or comment on specifically with elderhood yeah or just just what just this what we were just talking about Mm -hmm. I'm famous for the long pauses in interview. That's why in the book there's capitals, the long pause, because I just, I just sit in the space to, to see what's next. Uh, no, I don't have anything to add. Okay. And so the, the next, the next topic I wanted to bring forward is that of culture work and culture workers. 
And it seems that this book that you put together is definitely part of culture work and that you two are culture workers by putting it out and doing the work that you do and even having a conversation like this. And I'm wondering if you could share um, what, if you could help just flesh out this idea of culture work and what a culture worker. I, I hope that I am, I'm trying to be, I think for me, there's two streams. One is in my personal life. So what is relevant to the reality of the times, which in my very concrete uh, way of trying to figure this out was like, take a, the tiny piece of basically very dry dirt in my backyard and see if I could figure out how to make something grow there with the help of my neighbors. And I did, I mean, all I was really <laughs> told to do was put cardboard down over it and then put mulch over the cardboard. But even with an example that was that simple, I still messed up a, bu a bunch of times. Uh, so something very concrete and tangible like that. Uh, and talking to my neighbors who I hadn't really talked with very much about it. And, you know, they're in their yard all the time and just asking questions if I had them. Realizing how much conflict came about just in doing that with, because here in Southern California, we have a drought. So in order to grow anything, you have to put water on it. So then I was like, oh, I wasn't doing this because I didn't want to use the water. And I don't know how responsible it is to use the water, but I can't grow anything if I don't use the water. And coming from such a minimalist place from yoga years, and I, I have no trouble giving things up. I have trouble acquiring them. So trying to be in relationship with like, no, it's okay to do this thing and do that thing. So that's on the personal level. Then on the more professional level is trying to reframe conversations and questions that end up because the underpinnings of the white wellness world and the trauma world all have to do with this idea of um, human potential and limit limitlessness. And we're always moving towards healing and um So just running all of my skills and all of those things, it feels like it's going through like a spaghetti grinder or like a machine that's filtering it through to see what comes out on the other side and then be faithful to that. And uh, I mean, my, my first book, The Fourth Trimester, it is a piece of culture work. It is a call to supporting women and families postpartum. And what does that take? It takes slowing down. It takes caring about food. It takes not caring about productivity, those kinds of things. But it's only been, you know, seven-ish years since then. And this book that we're putting out reckoning we're, we're not we could have printed on demand at amazon we could you know there's a whole bunch of things but we just self-published it which in my has been really that to me that's also culture work like we have to physically go someone has to physically go and get the book someone has to physically send them 
the the charges for shipping it's not amazon prime so it's not free shipping so it's some and it's in Can on the website it's in canadian dollars so for anyone else in the world they're going to have to figure out what are canadian dollars and you know these small things but they add up when you start to work with them in in what comes out in the finished product but also in how that works on me as someone who's done it in different ways and in terms of of how you chose to put the book out it sounds like just just the way that you did that wanted you wanted that to be in alignment with the message that the book was actually sharing with people is that right yeah i mean i probably Yes, Stephen has already self-published one book, so he had a little bit of experience doing that. Um, but it also has to do with this idea that there's always a, a bigger, better way to do things and that, that somehow that will increase the value or that the wider the reach, the better. Because um, if you want to change more, more lives and you want to change culture, you better like go big because it's the, the world's going to shit. So we better do it fast and we better talk to as many people and, you know, be as efficient as possible in how we distribute the message. And I don't think that that's totally wrong either in some, in some ways, because, you know, social media is a good example. It's like, I mean, I know it's bad for my brain. I know it's bad for uh, my concentration, my focus, my sense of overall happiness. And do I use those tools to be able to build bridges to people who are elders so that there's a familiarity with that work. It just, the culture work is like putting me for me, putting these complex questions in a balance and then seeing what can come out of that. But also knowing that I'm not just, I know it's, it's all of this stuff is still hard for me to talk about because it's some of it is intangible, but also just because I'm so much, it's not like I never cared about culture before. I've always cared about culture and I've always cared about people. It's just that the invitation or it's not even this, the, I, it's not exactly absoluteness. Just the idea of limit is so, it's so foreign in spirituality in the circles that I've been in. Sure, we talk about impermanence, but still impermanence is like, well, you don't have, you're not really going to die. Like you are going to die, but you're going to continue on anyway. So there's, there's so many facets that come in at play. But for me, the culture work is not just thinking that one-on-one -on -one is the best that we can do or one to group, but like, what is beyond that? And what are the ways in my personal life and in my business life that I can create something uh, that moves in a direction that I would want my daughter to participate in or if I ever have grandchildren. Yeah. And Stephen, do you, is there more that you wanna to add to this concept of culture work and culture workers? Well, I. I I, I would add to it only to suggest uh, that I don't think either one of us chose straw dogs to destroy by what we did with the book. I don't think either one of us chose, um, you know, stationary adversaries and just pounded away until they were destroyed or anything of the kind. You know, if you take, if you take, if you, 
if you mount the barricade on behalf of culture work, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't stand individuals. <laughs> I mean, you kind of are one, but you're not worth much. I mean, Kimberly, what's this, the thing you sent me the other day in Portuguese? What is it again? Sozinho, você não vale nada. Uh, we don't, we're not worth anything alone. Okay, it's a little extreme, but uh, you know, it's, it's pretty alert though. Here's a good example. So when I was towards the end of my time in the death trade, the people who are dying more predictably were what you would call baby boomers. And lo and behold, even the dying doesn't extinguish their boomerness to the point where they were fairly routinely insisting on participating in an event that they would call their own wake. Now, the last time I checked, awaked needs a body, <laughs> not a living body, a dead one. If you don't have a death, if you don't have an absence and a gap in the proceedings, you don't have a wake. You just have some cranky celebration of life thing. I, I call it what you will, uh, another birthday party. I don't know. So they refused to relinquish their death grip on the meaning of their own lives long enough to watch other people participate in its creation. But that's what a real wake is. The meaning of your life begins to be assembled by people who wield a degree of authority about you that is absolutely breathtaking and unrecognizable to you in the course, in the time that you were alive. And that, that's how your life begins to appear. Not in what you did, but when you stopped and the, and the rest of us begin to participate in the in the adjudication, frankly, there's that's in there, and in the in the gross exaggeration and and flat out lying that can ensue in the course of, you know, when enough inebriation uh, enables. Culture work needs a kind of body. It needs a kind of goneness to respond to. I think. Well, we don't have to go looking. We can talk about the goneness of elderhood. We can talk about the goneness of the commons and the, under, the fundamental understanding that the word company in English come from two Latin words, with and bread. The word literally means how we are with each other is transacted not in our unmediated direct relationship, like what we're doing now. Our fundamental relationship with each other is transacted through the world, through the, the materia of the world through, yeah, it's mothered by the world, you see. So, so we need the bread of the world in order to begin to really approach each other in a way that becomes recognizable and culture-making and world-friendly. Those are some of the criteria of the work, I think. Mm -hmm. Taking a long pause too. <laughs> Well, I want so to like say something it, yeah. about yeah about meaning because there's a lot out there about finding your purpose. A lot of people are concerned about finding their purpose and want help finding their purpose. And there's also 
like in the union realm, there's this thing about meaning making and it's, and that's a positive thing. That's like, we should, you know, you want to make meaning of things. And then in the somatic experiencing realm where I come from, it's like trying to get out of thought made meeting, trying to loosen what we think is meaning and learn from a different orientation, whether that's imagery or sensation or movement that we're letting other parts of the world inform us of meaning and so this is just more of a still a wondering because the other day for instance somebody that I was working with as a practitioner asked me to write my own eulogy and I've had friends who who are still alive who have asked somebody to give them a funeral as a ritual so they could hear what everyone said to them or like to have a funeral of a certain part of their life as a ritual. And yeah, so I just, I'm just wondering about the role of meaning and how important it is to try to make it if it's something that we're, I mean, Gordon Lish just says we're like pathetic little meaning makers. So obviously as humans, it's something that we're just driven to do, but I guess how we do it it feels like that is a keystone of misdirection that we interpreted that as something that we're doing like one person is doing with oneself instead of that somehow we're doing it. We're making it together and Mm. not together because I hire someone to make it with me Mm. together because we're in a, we're in a common relationship area space project and therefore the meaning arises somehow that way. Indeed. You prompted me to think that um, the notion of, of agreement is overspoken in terms of community, I think. It's not, it's not required. What is required is the ability to proceed mutually as if certain things are so or necessary uh, or missing. And that's a different form from finding yourself fundamentally in agreement with another person. I don't think that's all that necessary. I mean, I don't think Kimberly and I I agree on a tremendous number of things. And there's some relief in being able to participate one with the other without the prerequisite that we simply avoid the things that we don't hold in common. We have no obligation to hold the majority of of the world in common in order to be able to work together and, and, uh, and try to be useful, you know, while we still can. Yeah. And it's often said like with intimate relationships that the more conflict you have, you know, or that, that conflict, conflict is a sign of a healthy relationship because you're willing, <laughs> you're willing to, to disagree, you know, and not, not just brush things under the rug. I think you got to go beyond willing and you got to talk in terms of capacity. Yeah. This fundamental disagreement is a capacity. It's not a gap in understanding. It's not a temporary condition that has to be overcome by all kinds of mutuality. It's, It's really an ability to let stand what isn't you. Or the the incursion upon it, uh, it, uh, what was it, Kimberly? You remember, remember this phrase better than I. The 
the incursion upon infinity, which is the presence of another person, some, something like that. that that's, what, that's the ability, the ability to surrender infinite possibility in terms of the wouldas and the kudas and the shouldas for the sake of engagement with a, a given specific and time-limited thing called the other person. I think that's what we did. I don't know, but I feel that the reason it, one of the reasons it's so hard to have what we label as conflict, first of all, is, is coming from white religious, Protestant religion of, you know, being kind and, and of course, you know, as women, we're like socialized to be nice and to like keep, you know, not make waves. But I see it over and over again when I'm in Brazil that people get in really big arguments about things that for me would want to just tell them to just absolutely go to hell and like not ever want to talk to them again. In fact, this happened to me in my last trip. Somebody like tried to, they lied to me and like put one over on me. Then I found out about the putting over and then they apologized. But I was just like, oh, I don't want your apology. Like you jerk, like you're such a jerk. And plus, I couldn't really communicate that well about that quick. But then when my partner started talking about it, he was just telling them exactly what they did wrong. And then they were like, well, we don't want to, you know, you've been a great tenant and we don't want to make you. And he's like, there's nothing wrong here. I'm just telling you, it can't be like this. Well, we don't want to da, da, da. No, no, like we're, this is good. It's just that you can't do this. And it was, I think it's because it's not so disposable. The relationships aren't so disposable. You can't just move on and go have a relationship with someone else. You're going to have to walk down the street and see that person frequently and so you need them for something. So if you need them, you can't just automatically dismiss them. And there's so many ways now that we can just dismiss people, yeah, yeah. especially online. I mean, I hear these weird yeah. stories of women who have two month online chatting with someone and then never hear from the person again or meet up a few times and then that's it. There's not there's no real consequence for if you don't, if you're not having to rely on anyone for certain functions. It's very transactional. But I could see if, if like I had a good and somebody else had a good and the only way that I could eat that thing is if I had a relationship with that other person or else I couldn't actually have the thing that I needed, that would be transactional too. But it would we would both know that we'd have to find a way to get along somehow so that we could have the physical, tangible thing that we needed. Yeah. When I moved here to the farm 20 years ago, it was a, it was a crackhead of a place. It had been so drugged by uh, the green revolution and all the chemicals and so on some years ago, but still, I mean, it was, it was almost sterile. It was so overly helped, if you will. So what, and, and my vision was to um, somehow be a, a farmer. Well, there's no farming available in a circumstance like that, unless I go back to the junk, which I wasn't prepared to do. So here's what I did instead. 
I set about trying to make ground, not grow something in the ground, but actually make the ground, make more ground, make ground that wasn't predicated on what I could get from it. That was five years of dirt making before we, quote, raised anything. That's village making. That's village mindedness. That's community building. That's culture work. In a time like this, you have to be willing to forego the notion of produce or productivity or measurable outcomes or upside and understand that the ground is hurt. So make ground. It's a doable thing, but it needs an immense amount of patience and a willingness to forego the old reward system. And get along with people who live down the block. Yeah. So I want to circle back to that in a little bit. But before we, we get there, there's um, some other important concepts that I wanted to name here that you all speak to. And that I know are also really central to your work, Stephen, and that is um, grief and death and heartbreak. And, you know, and, and all of these are very, they're just part of human existence, very um, taboo and just adverse in our dominant culture. And also just so in our faces these past few years, um, can you speak to, can you speak to these, these concepts, these states, these experiences and why they're so important. Sorry, grief and heartbreak. Oh, heartbreak, right. Why yeah. would I leave that one out? Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> they're, you know, up, they're right up there with uh, uh, food. That's, it's another kind of Maslow's hierarchy. To me, it is. It these things constitute uh, the capacity to belong somewhere and to someone and to a time, minus any one of those things, I don't think you have belonging. You have uh, transience and you have dealing and upside. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I remember Kimberly, she wrote me, uh, told me that she had, or, or it was in, maybe in our conversation, that she had written a book in which she went to the index, I guess, and, and investigated how often the word grief appeared. Do you want to tell the story? You could tell it better than me. Well, I, in the call of the wild, I just got curious how many times I wrote grief, how many times I wrote anger and how many times I wrote sadness. And, you know, that book is primarily about anger and anger as a important reparative experience. Nevertheless, uh, I have a whole chart about emotional signposts and which physiological states correspond in the autonomic nervous system with the emotions and grief isn't on that chart, which I'm really happy about because I didn't really know anything about it at the time. So I'm glad I didn't try to extend myself into that realm that I didn't really know anything about. Um, and so now I understand it differently and I understand it as a substrate. I think grief has a pejorative term. So even, even though it's getting re 
refabricated lately and it's it's all around people will say well yeah grief because grief is love and grief yeah grief because grief is gratitude and yeah grief because grief is beauty and they're the same thing uh so maybe we need a new word but the grief the importance of grief is that then we it distorts all of those other experiences so it's as if it's like sitting on top of everything since we don't have a collective understanding of how grief works in the culture, what we might do together in order to experience that grief, then in technical terms, we might call it misdiagnosing, but in just human terms, we get all of these distorted experiences that then we think are something else, but are actually that we don't have an experience, the skill, the practice of grieving. Right. And the support. We need support to grieve. Well, indeed, but that's not going to come first. It's not like there's a supportive atmosphere and then the thing to support miraculously appears and draws down the the supportiveness. I think it's the other way around. I think you, you cultivate the capacity unsupported or nominally supported. You cultivate the capacity with no reward in place for doing so. The capacity for grief I mean, I, in the death trade, people routinely avoided grief as a, as a lunge towards, quote, optimal mental health, considering the circumstances. If you can believe it, I'm telling you. And it happened over and over and over again to the point where, I mean, they made a film about me, the National Film Board of Canada here. And the name of the film was Grief Walker. Because the, the director of the film ascertained that that in, in effect was my job description. And he wasn't wrong. So the only way I could advocate grief was not by recommending it or prescribing it. I had to practice it. I had to practice the capacity of heartbrokenness, not as a surrogate for somebody else's, but as some kind of, some kind of devotional practice that was available by virtue of the example that was manifest before us. And this is absolutely counter to the typical psychological preparation that dictates that your life as the counselor has no business really fundamentally appearing, you know, in your work with another person. It's just, it's what they call, I can't remember the language anymore. Uh, transference and countertransfer and all that malarkey, you know, and my grief belonged in the death room of a fellow human being. That's what I'm saying. It belonged there. And I had an obligation to see to it that it was there. What I didn't have an obligation to do, and frankly, no right to do, was have recourse to the dying person as a surrogate for my inability to live this, this authentically and employ their dying to somehow get my yayas out. I had no, obviously, no right to do that. But I certainly had an obligation to, to participate fundamentally in the dying of a fellow human being and in so doing contribute a little bit to the meaning of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree that grief is a capacity and that that's how I came across your work um, for the first time, Stephen, it was about four years ago and you were, I was living in California at the time and you were coming to speak in Ojai and I, I had just moved mm-hmm. there and I had reached out to, I was, I was, gr- I was going through a lot of grief. I experienced just several serial heartbreaks 
And um, I was searching online for grief rituals because I had done done one here in Colorado that was really, really supportive. And I, I came across a woman there who was running grief rituals and she told me about your talk and said, I think you'd be really interested in, in, in his work. And I, and I, and I, it just really resonated with me. And I, I watched grief locker at that time. And just like you're saying, I feel like, I feel like those years of intense grief just grew my capacity to be in it and now to be with other people when they're in it. And it's, um, and also to be in these times where there is so much grief and heartbreak. Whereas if I hadn't gone through that, I, I think I would be relating to this moment in time in a very different way. Yeah. I, I would have to say if we're playing a little bit badminton with the concept here, that I'm not persuaded myself that we are, that there's all kinds of grief and heartbreak around. Now that might sound bizarre, I don't know, but I'm, I'm genuinely not persuaded that that's the case. Grievance, uh, the convictions around trauma, yeah, the sense of uh, privilege and anti-privilege and counter-privilege and privilege privilege and all, yeah. The sense of not really not belonging, not trying to find, I can't really find my home. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not living up to my, yep, that's all there. But none of that shit's heartbreak. Heartbreak requires the engagement of the heart, not the choice uh, range, the heart. And we don't have in, in contemporary North America, we don't have any sophistication in how we speak about the so-called inner life. We have no distinction to be able to available to us to make between heart and spirit and psyche and soul. And I mean, this is just, you know, it's just, it's like one of those uh, self-storage units on the edge of town. Like you open the door. Oh my God, there's all your shit. That's basically what the inner life I think is in North America. And so I, I'm not, I'm not willing to credit the general population with the capacity for grief, the entertainment of grief, the engagement with grief, or heartbreak, or any of these other, you know, high-end mandatory human encounters. That needs work. It doesn't need the aversive posture of the great grief bypass that so much self-improvement embarks upon. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like there, there's a big connection between grief and limitation. As I can just speak from my own experience, it's like grief really brought me face to face with my limitation and like, and helped me make peace with my limitation in a lot of ways. Although of course that peace itself is probably limited. So don't leave that. Part yes, out. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't yes. leave. And, and the capacity for grief is a little limited too. So there's that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you get heartbroken just because you haven't got it straight. And just because another four years have clicked by and God damn it, you're still kind of, you know, you need that stuff in there to give you a sense of urgency about the whole, the whole proposal to be human. And my great good fortune was I accompanied so many fellow human beings who are flat out dead. Right now I can't escape their example. And their example informs me 
And the, and the information I gleaned from it basically is a sense of urgency minus any content. The translation I still have to do. I'll, I'll tell you a little story from the other day, taking up too much time here, I'll stop with this. Um, I'm falling asleep, but I'm not asleep yet. So I'm in that moment, you know, where you're kind of alert that you're not asleep, but you're sure not awake. And I don't know what you call it, but it's, it can be magic hour. And in that moment, I'm going to call it a voice. I'm not, I don't think there's any speaking because I have to translate the event into the sentence I'm going to tell you. But it came to me and it's absolutely embossed me in some fashion. And it simply said this, it's going to sound very benign. It said, far as we know, that's how it began. Far as we know, who's we? I don't know. But as far as we know, so already it's collegial in some fashion. It's leaning in close to me like I'm doing to the camera and saying, you know, as far as we know, you only get one shot at this. <laughs> and then they were out onto the next house like Santa Claus or something. I don't know. And, uh, and that's what I had to lay there with. You know, this, this great heartbreaking realization that as far as we know, we get one shot at being alive like this. I mean, obviously other people claim to know otherwise. I'm not one of them. So, so then what does it mean? And what are you doing? And what are you waiting for? These become questions that are genuine questions and not provocations to aimless gestures of, of wild activity. And I'm very glad for these kind of visitations. They're very stilling, I have to say. And there is sadness afoot in it because you, you look across the pillow or across the cornflakes or across the breadth of your days you say, God, I've seen more of life by far than I'm going to see. And then you start doing the math on, are you going to make it out of the 2020s? Are you? What is, what's the likelihood for me to do so? It's not vast. So all these things are very stilling, no? And this is uh, as important to the cultivation of the capacity for grief as any particular activity might be. So I'd re obviously I'd recommend heartbreak, but in order to do so, the heart has to be involved. You can't decide on heartbreak because if you do, that's not what it is. It's another strategy for contentment. And earlier in our conversation, and I'm forgetting the exact words that you used, um, Stephen, you talked about how we have a choice between just seeing this time as something that's, these aren't, I'm paraphrasing. So as an affliction versus an assignment. Affliction versus an assignment. So if we're to take this on as an assignment rather than an affliction, what, just to orient listeners, like, I know this is a vast, <laughs> a vast topic, but what, <laughs> what could that, yeah. What could that look like? I like smell are, a how-to question coming around. Or just like just like some practical um, things just to take away, you know, and I know that's kind of like against what this is about in a lot of ways, but I yeah. think you understand what I mean. I think I understand what you mean. Yeah. And you know I'm not going to answer the question in the terms that you've asked it. Yes. I think you had and a sense fine. of that. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I don't, because I don't think solutions belong in the discussion we're having here. 
I mean, I suppose there's a time for them, but I'm not really just that interested in them. It's like near-death experiences. Not that interested. Why? Near-life experiences are the ones that concern me. That's why. Uh, but not to be completely flip or cavalier about the thing, I would say this to you. So there's a, a younger woman who's in touch with me. And I don't know exactly why. And she wants to have a kind of encounter that others lean in on. And I don't know exactly why or, or what the content is. So I have to employ my heartbreak about the world that the people of my age, more or less, are in the process of handing over to the people of her age. I have to employ it. Okay, not feel it. I have to employ it in order to come to her as a three-dimensional human being who I mourn over without knowing her. Now, the woman I'm talking about is Kimberly in, the, in this case. And that's what I agreed to do. And it was not easy to do. None of these things are feelings I'm describing to you. You submit yourself to the partly the scrutiny and partly the, the upheaval of a fellow human being who's a generation younger than you. You participate to some degree in an acknowledgement that you have played generationally some part in their upheaval. Whether they see it that way or not, you do. And you have to translate that into what? A sense of personal responsibility to this person? Not at all. A sense that you have to rescue them somehow from the slings and arrows that are about to befall them by virtue of the world they're inheriting? Not at all. Then what? First of all, you see if you can be in the same place. Second of all, do you have the capacity to see the world that they see, not see them? see the world that, in this case, she sees. And she let me down easy because she said at some point in one of the conversations, oh, I'm not, I don't have that big a grudge against people of your age. <laughs> so it's kind of all the steam went out of the, <laughs> out of the urgency. In the mind. I kind of had to sustain the grievance on her behalf in order to make the point at all. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but that's one of the ways you do it, you see, is, is, is you don't, I mean, what constitutes a cult? Answer is, Everybody believes the same thing, more or less at the same time, at least overtly. Um, what constitutes a healthy culture? No crazy people? Absolutely not. Lots of crazy people in a healthy culture. A healthy culture is, is, is recognizable by the fact that not everybody's crazy at the same time. There's people who's crazy because it's their turn. And there's people who are not, and they have heavy responsibility vis-a-vis -vis the crazy people. I'm using the word crazy, you know, just um, quickly here. So th these are all actions I'm describing. So I don't have a, a, a list for you or for anybody who's listening about how to do this. But I haven't hidden from it in the entire conversation. I've done my best to manifest and, and incarnate what I'm advocating so that you don't have to look further than my meager example to get an idea of what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it comes back to what, when you were talking about the function of elderhood, how it's, it's about example. 
yeah it's it's it employs example it's yeah, the examples are are critical but not encyclopedic yeah. i mean much of your example leaves leaves a lot of important stuff out and so you leave room for other people you don't try to you know cover the waterfront <laughs> as an elder type you just have your cranky little corner you know and you just make your case over and over and over again Kimberly, did you want to add anything? In towards the end of the book, Stephen and I write a letter to one another, but we didn't read each other's letters. We just press send at the same time and each sent them to each other. And one of the things that he talks about in that piece is father hunger. And is there an absence of fathers or is there an absence of the ability to be fathered? And I think when people hear the, and anyone who's listening to this podcast wants to be a part of the solution, you know, relates on some level to heartbreak, even if they don't know how to do it well, or they're confused by the conversation, but there's, there's something that's calling people to hear it. And so then our mind kind of goes, okay, well, then I better find an elder or I better or my mind went to, I better find one for my daughter or go to someplace where there might be a better chance that she might find one. But we could also look at what it means to be elderable. How, how can we make ourselves somebody who could be eldered no matter what age we are? And I, to me, there's something related there uh, because some of the time it feels like there's just kind of a spray gun going around targeting wherever that spray might land you know i just heard that there's now a book called mother hunger that came out last year it's like well then are we just we're just hungry for everything you know just like we're just hungry uh so what if there if if there's some thread that someone heard throughout the conversation that might give them a sense of because there's there's no we're not going to get an immediate reward from like my backyard still looks terrible and it probably it's gonna i don't know if it'll take me five years i don't even i don't even know that was the other thing i one of my thoughts was why do i even start i don't know if i'm gonna live here that much longer right like well should i put cardboard down and do this thing that the next person might not like or that my you know my landlord might be mad about because it looks different than everyone else's yards or do I do it anyway, not knowing what the future is, because that's that's one way that I can relate to the place where I am and that I could begin to make ground. And so this book, Reckoning, it's just came out. Is that right? Like what? Not even. Officially out? Not even. Not even. When is I it don't released? Think it's, I don't think it's dry yet. Okay. What was that, Kimberly? August 16th. August 16th. Okay. And where can listeners find it? Orphanwisdom.com slash reckoning. Okay. Orphanwisdom.com slash reckoning. And we'll put that in the show notes for people. And is there anything else that you want to, to share or to to leave us with today. We know there's been a lot of jewels here.
one one thought that I had was because I've as far as I can tell, nobody really names themselves an elder, although in some in some cultures they do. I mean, I have friends who say I have a Native American elder or this person is my elder. But in for people who look like us, there's not a tradition of naming yourself an elder. Uh, but as somebody who's been in a kind of apprenticeship to elderhood, and and seriously considering it for the last year since I had this first conversation with Stephen Jenkinson and he has a book called Come of Age, A Case for Elderhood in Times of Crisis, something like that, Times of Trouble. Uh, that I've had to let my language, I've had to hold the tension of letting my language be changed and the 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 meanings of words that were sort of knee-jerk parts of just a framework that I wasn't even sure that I was operating from. So letting my language be changed at the same time as still being myself, because I can't take out the fact that I'm essentially a Valley girl from Southern California. So how I can do those two things at the same time. So it's like, um, it's like the words that come to mind for me are like integration and reconciling. Does that feel? It just feels like living in dynamic tension all the time of that spaghetti grinder and, you know, being, having some level of, you could call it forgiveness or you could just call it plain old, you know, willing to just make mistakes and humiliate yourself or, Mm -hmm. you know, be embarrassed to, to, to first, for instance, to try to, it's sort of like the experience of praying if you didn't grow up ever learning how to pray or you only learned how to pray with something that was already like our father who art in heaven, something that you just repeat. Mm-hmm. How do you pray if you never learned? And yeah. maybe that's the way you start. I don't know, but it feels like that. It feels like if I'm going to honor my own lineage and my own ancestors and try to compose something that has to do with the place that I'm from or, or hear something, maybe not compose it, but hear it. Then I'm, then I am just going to have to be, I'm going to have to make a lot of mistakes and, and like feel really awkward and, um, but not stop trying to do it. Yeah. And I appreciate your willingness to do that and to do it just out loud and in public. It's inspiring. (laughs) And I hear you uncomfortable. Yeah. How about you, Stephen? Any, any words you want to leave us with today? Well, I, I think I have, but uh, I can leave you with a story though. It goes like the true story really happened. It goes like this. So I'm, I'm carving stone as a kid, as in my 20s or early 30s. And I can't get the hang of it. But much more importantly, I can't get the hang of making a living from it at all. So in my wisdom at the time, I seek out some old fella. I find a guy who's been doing it for, God, it was 60 some odd years. It was crazy how long he'd been doing it. And I thought, oh, this is the mothership. This is not going to be a problem at all. Call him up. And this is what I said, if you can believe it. I said, yeah, my name's so-and-so, and and, uh, I do the same thing that you do. You know, not for as long, obviously, but same work. And uh, so I thought I'd just come over, if you don't mind, and you can give me sort of the lay of the land of 
you know, how this thing actually works. And you've made a go of it. So uh, I'm sure I can too, basically. It embarrasses me to remember it, but I did. And this, the first words out of his mouth were this. He said, same work, huh? <laughs> I didn't take the hint. So I said, yeah, yeah, same work. Thinking he was gathering me in. It's not what was happening. And he said, uh, tell me this. He said, you work at it every day? Now, I knew what the right answer was, but I also knew what the accurate answer was. And I gave him the accurate answer, sort of. I said, well, I think about it every day. <laughs> every day, I said. And he said, do you? He said, I'll tell you what, you call me when you do it every day. Click. And I sat there and thought, as you would have thought, proud asshole. That's what I thought. And uh, suddenly, he wasn't the esteemed guy who'd been doing it for 65 years. He was an uncooperative old fucker. That's all he was in my you know, great, vast capacity for esteem. So I'm telling the story at my expense. I hope this shows. So I decided I got in, I got this bit between my teeth. I was a little, I was a little, I was smart enough to know that I wasn't done. Let's put it that way. And so I worked for two weeks every day. And then I called him again, two weeks. That's not every day. That's two weeks. But anyway, that's all I had. So I picked up, got the phone, phone rings. He answers it again, just like he did. I said, hi, this is, and he cuts me off. He says, I know who it is. I said, okay, well, look, I know it's only two weeks. And uh, no matter what you say to what I'm going to ask you now, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do it more or less every day. But I hope this is good enough for you to just knuckle under and let me come over, see a different tone second time around. And he said, you know, if I say no, it's not going to change anything, is it, in you or about you? So I'm going to say yes, and that's not going to change anything either, because you're going to have it your way. So here's what we're going to do. I'll tell you where I am. You're going to come over. I'm going to tell you everything I know, but I mean everything I know. But here's the problem. You're going to be disappointed because it's not going to take nearly as long as you're counting on. I can tell by what you're saying, but I will. But we're going to make a deal and it's going to be right now. That's my end of the deal. Here's your end. You don't keep any of what I give to you to yourself. And I don't, and I mean not any, because if you do, he said, he's a very proper Englishman, right? He said, if you do, living or dead, he said, I will find you, I will haunt you. And living or dead, I will haunt your ass to kingdom come if you keep any of this to yourself. You still want to come over. And I did. And the reason I'm telling the story is because my encounter with Kimberly allowed me to keep my vow to that old man. And that's mm -hmm. who we can be to each other. And she didn't even know that, but she did it anyhow by being willing, as you said, or as she said, to be more than a little uncertain of herself. See? And the old man gets honored by virtue of the vow I made to him, and I don't get haunted for another 24 or 36 hours. It's a pretty good deal, really. It was a good deal. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that story. It's a great way to close. So I appreciate, I appreciate both of you and the work that you're doing, the examples that you're living, and this book reckoning that you've created together. And I thank you for your time and being here today and sharing your, your wisdom with us all. And you for yours. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Kimberly. Thanks, Stephen. Be your one true glorious self. Me too. <laughs> thank you for being here today. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.